Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking to Professor Bruce Errol about the distressed patient and taking care when making a diagnosis. Bruce is the Professor at the Department of General Practice and Primary Health Care at the University of Auckland. He is a medical graduate from the University of Auckland and spent a year at McMaster's University in Hamilton, Ontario, doing his general practice training. His current research interest includes the rapid non-drug treatments of mental health conditions such as depression and anxiety. Welcome Bruce. Thank you Louise. In today's episode we are discussing the distressed patient and over-diagnosis and over-treatment when thinking about mental health conditions. Bruce, why is it important to address symptoms rather than applying a label in this first consult? Well, I think we tend to see distressed patients, and as Alan Francis said on his BMJ Overdiagnosis podcast, we're often seeing people on the worst day of their life, and we shouldn't be giving them diagnoses at that point. We should be spending more time with them and more visits, and then those labels will invariably disappear. And I'd have to say that is my experience too. Uh, so I really give labels at the first visit. I really give labels at all now. Uh, I, I refer to the patient as being distressed. And if I, have, uh, if I have a need to, like for a sickness benefit, I use adjustment reaction because I think that's sufficiently, it indicates there has been some sort of distress, but it's not a big heavy label that anyone's going to have problems with insurance or uh, getting jobs. So you had an example of a clinical situation where someone had had a label and then had problems further down the track. This came to my attention with a 23-year-old lady who came to me wanting to adopt a baby. And she had uh, endogenous depression in her notes and anxiety. And I'm filling out the piece of paper and my heart's dropping because I realise, you know, there's only five babies a year that get adopted. And she's not going to get one of them uh, with those sort of labels there, almost certainly. And they, they were given to her, actually not by me, but I had used them to give her her sickness benefit a few years ago when life wasn't going too well. But she's in a stable relationship now and things are going very well. So I realised that these big labels can come back to bite people. And I've heard that from other colleagues too, uh, you know, when, when you go to do insurance things. And it's very hard prospectively to be able to give somebody a label. I think you can sometimes look back and say this person maybe had this or that. But looking forward, and I think that's when we do the diagnoses, and often at that first visit, uh, yet we don't need to. It's not like America where we need to do it to get paid. So um, Alan Francis also talks about um, an inaccurate disaster diagnosis as a disaster, hauntingly irrevocable, may go with them ever. And I would say the other risk with a big label is that the patient gets a big medication. He does also say, so he was the, the person who ran the DSM-4 and is highly critical of the DSM-5, that some labels are incredibly useful, like panic disorder. So your 22-year-old with crushing central chest pain learns to know that they're not having a heart attack, they're actually having a panic attack, and that's actually a very useful diagnosis, but I'm not sure depression or anxiety actually advances, because I mean, we all have episodes of distress that you could call depression and anxiety in our lives, so how, <clears throat> how useful is that? 
and um, I don't think it's necessary. I think we should get on with the therapy. We should look at the, the functional deficits in a person's life, the things, the good things they've stopped doing, like exercising, spending minimal, you know, reasonable time in bed, uh, getting out with their friends, and those sort of things. Great points, Bruce. Uh, so, Bruce, often people come in and they've Googled their symptoms and they've applied a label themselves. I'm depressed, I'm anxious, and we feed into that. Have you got any tips for the practitioner as to how to avoid those? I think that that requires a conversation. I say to patients, now, I don't give labels like that. I will say you're distressed or stuck. But uh, you're right, patients will come in. And sometimes, I just had a recent situation of somebody going for a, uh, a new job and the patient had come in and said, I've come in about my depression and anxiety. And the doctor had run in, written down, I've come in about my depression and anxiety. But that was the only time those labels were mentioned. Even though this woman had seen a psychologist on two occasions and a counsellor on another occasion, it actually was her. So I think we have to educate patients that we can't be that sure about those labels. And we know the so-called depression and anxiety, uh, they're about 85% uh, overlapping anyway and it's very hard to distinguish one from the other. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter. The treatments are the same, uh, the drugs are the same, the talk therapies are the same, so no need. Great, so one of your catchphrases is talk first and prescribe later. Can you tell us a wee bit about this statement? Yes, I think I'm, I'm very much encouraging uh, GPs and nurses uh, and frontline clinicians to talk with their patients before before prescribing. I prescribe about 7% of my patients get an antidepressant at the first visit, and that's invariably because they come in saying, my mum's on citalopram, I used to be on citalopram, give me some citalopram or else sort of thing. You get that ultimatum. And that requires a lot of, um, a lot of emotional energy and professional push to actually counter that, you'd really have to hang yourself out to dry. And I tend to acquiesce, I would say. But I generally let patients go three or four weeks. If they're not getting better, if, if their mood scores are staying elevated and they're not getting better, then I'll have the discussion about medication. Uh, I'm not opposed to medication, but we know it, only, it really only works for people at the severe end of the spectrum. And how do you decide if someone's at the severe end of the spectrum? Their scores stay up there and they're not getting better. You want them to be trying things. You want them to be exercising, socialising, uh, looking after their sleep. Uh, but if that's not working, then you know you, they may get a benefit from a medication. Activity scheduling is an important tool for use with good evidence of efficacy. Please can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes, well this is known in the trade as behavioural activation and the key thing is to get the patient doing things um, because what, the, what people do is shrink down their world when they get distressed. It's a natural human reaction. Under stress we, we pull in the wagons and we circle the wagons uh, but it actually that doesn't help. The solution becomes the problem. So not, not contacting your social world then becomes a problem. So that's a, um, a quote from Kirk Strosser, one of the founders of ACT, the solution becomes the problem, which I think is very profound. And life constriction accompanies mental health problems. So, and I find uh, in a study we did in our clinic, numbers needed to treat of three. At one week, 30% of people were better with just behavioural activation, just being asked to do tasks. Who would you like to get, who, who would welcome a phone call from you or a visit? 
Um, and that can be quite surprising. People, oh, well, Susan, I haven't, you know, she's my best friend, but I haven't seen her for six months. You know, well, okay, I think she'd enjoy a visit. How, uh, would, would you be willing to do that? Yes. And here's the second thing. You have to check how likely they are to do it. On a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to have a cup of coffee with Susan? And they have to get seven out of 10 or more. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. And as a doctor or nurse, if you don't check that out, the patient, if the patient's think doing two and you're thinking 10 or nine, then you're on cuckoo land. The patient is saying to you, I have no intention of doing this. My subcon- Well, they may not even know consciously they have no intention of doing it, but if they check it out and they come up with anything less than a seven, they're probably under-motivated to do things. And we wonder why people don't do things. Well, it's because we don't check out whether they want to do something or not. And with someone who's quite distressed, we almost need to give them a 24-hour tool, putting in sleep and meals and appointments. Tell us about how you do this. Well, you can actually just give them a 24-hour sheet and they can put in, so get up in the morning, have a shower. Sometimes people, sometimes people who are very flat may need to be quite directed. You know, if they're very, very flat, then sometimes you have to say you need to get up, you need to have a shower, you need to have breakfast, uh, you need to do this, you know, get the newspaper or something, um, go for a walk um, to get to get people going. So um, mo- most people, I think, will, will I, I just give two or three tasks, but very occasionally I do that formal activity scheduling to get people going who are really lost and not how, and, and they've lost the ability to use their time basically, is, is what can happen when you get very, very flat. Because the brain shuts down and the brain really isn't functioning properly in, in some of these low mood states. So I think it's important to help people schedule things in. Let's talk a little bit about sleep and a brief discussion around sleep hygiene. Right, okay. So uh, the, the key question for me is when somebody's got low motivation is are they spending extra time in bed when they're not asleep? So there's a risk of wanting to go and hide under the sheets um, and not do things. And being in bed when you're not asleep is not good for you, not good for your health. So that's one thing. The other thing, which is a bit more of a modern problem, is this issue of devices, people with their iPads in bed. Um, a, it's stimulating. They're doing, they're doing games and, uh, and fun things. So that's not allowing them to slow down. And B, there's this issue of the light coming in, which may be turning on the melatonin. So there's some, some thought that um, devices at night are really telling your brain that it's morning time, of course, and you're waking you up rather than putting you down. But also just the, same, the, the, the usual old things of a regular bedtime, a bit of a ritual, maybe a bath or something. Uh, and, and a regular bedtime. Interestingly, how, how erratic some people can be mm. with their bedtimes. Yes, it can be difficult getting people off screens, but the current recommendation is no screens two hours before bedtime. Yeah, no, I'd go along with that. Mm. Uh, meditation and mindfulness can be beneficial. Yes. Tell yeah, us no, about this. They've been shown to be um, particularly good for, for, for preventing recurrent depression. Um, I think, and I think the community is quite open to that now. Uh, there's lots of apps around. Most pa- people don't look at you weirdly as if you're some some Eastern uh, mystic, or you know you've got an interest in Buddhism. I think it's it's become so mainstream now, and it's mainstream psychology. So I think that's a, a good way um, to get people. Uh, I, I sort of use it a bit more as exposure therapy 
to be present with their uncomfortable feelings because in the model that I use, uh, people are avoiding their uncomfortable feelings. So I get them to sit and be present with their uncomfortable feelings and be willing to accept the suffering that's coming. Now that's not condoning what may have caused it, you know, something bad happening to somebody. It's learning a state of acceptance. So, um, so that's my mindfulness is a bit more an exposure therapy rather than just to relax somebody. And it also can give people a bit of a perspective on what's happening with their bodies. You know, they, they can start focusing on their body and realize how tense they are. Exercise is a big one. We want people exercising earlier in the day. Yes. How much? Exercise, I think, is really important. Well, it's recommended 150 minutes a week, which is a, which is a tall order. But I think... Um, getting 30 minutes at least three times a week and it doesn't have to be jogging i think uh, uh, in middle-aged and older people you actually don't want them jogging they're going to injure themselves um, young people that's fine I think young people do need to do vigorous exercise but it's the first port of call for me somebody who's not exercising uh, it's very unusual to see somebody who's distressed who's physically fit it's extremely rare in my in my in my experience so it's actually it's the simplest way to get somebody feeling better I say to them some people who are very flat uh, sometimes you have to edge them on and say you know you you may not enjoy this initially but the benefits will come later mm. we heard a lot about that in a podcast with Girish Kanji mm. uh, a little while ago and uh, there's a whole podcast on the exercise and depression so that's yes, worth you know, referring that's to an important podcast mm. Socialising. Why is it important to socialise and why does it need to be over and above in the workplace? Uh, well, we're social animals essentially and much as our tribe can cause us distress, they're also a, um, a source of support. So we have to reconnect with our tribe and our friends um, in, in the wider sense. So, that's, that's, uh, so withdrawing from friends and family is a bad sign and you have to work to try and get people to reconnect with those people and sometimes try and repair the relationships. If there's, if there's a rupture in the relationships, uh, then, um, then that's, that can be a, a task as, as a uh, clinician. It's always important to ask our patients about nutrition and uh, to consider a whole food Mediterranean type diet. What are your thoughts here? Well, I think the Mediterranean diet is good, good for health in general. I think the issue of nutrition and mental health is, is a bit inconsistent from my view. Um, but I often say to people, I'd like you to eat well as an act of generosity to yourself. So it may help your mood. Um, the, the evidence is a bit... Um, all over the place with that from my point of view but uh, it's an act of kindness to yourself and self-compassion so I do encourage people you know to stop going off and getting the hamburgers and preparing a meal it's part of that that kindness that self-kindness cultivating the voice of self-kindness uh, is actually I think quite a good uh, it's a little mantra that I've learned from Paul Gilbert um, who's the compassion focused therapy person so um, when life gets stressful for me I just say cultivate the voice of self-kindness in your mind Bruce and um, it just turns off my adrenal glands very quickly yes. I immediately feel better even if it's on the motorway and I'm starting to get a bit of road rage you know um, just okay just a bit of self-kindness and it's remarkable how how um, how how good that can be so yeah so that's the way I do that um, uh, the nutrition thing. 
What about sunshine and exercising in nature or being in nature? Well, I, I think, again, um, not a lot of randomised trials looking at specifically that issue, but I think sunshine is quite important uh, in terms of mood. We're, we're designed to be out in the sun and getting out, and I think that's one of the benefits of exercise, actually, is it does get you out of the house. Um, and it's nice being in nature if you can be. It's very hard to do a randomised trial on that, of course, but I think uh, just coming from first principles, that's a good thing. If people have got access to nature, of course, some people living in cities won't have access to nature, but there's usually a park somewhere or something. Or you can go and be mindful about, uh, about what's nice, a nice building, uh, you know, a nice tree, you know, a nice fountain or something, that sort of stuff. That, that learning, learning that gratitude, I think, is quite important. Looking at what you've got rather than haven't got, because when you get distressed, you start to think about what you haven't got. And I'm often saying to people, hang on, just think about what you have got rather than what you haven't got. And um, that's much better, I think, for your adrenal glands than, um, than you know, looking at what everyone else has got and thinking, I haven't got that, you know, which we, we can do quite easily in our, in our materialistic society. Absolutely. So, Bruce, just talking about medications for a moment now, medications are not without issues. Um, there was a paper by Kalpas and JAMA earlier this year talking about SRIs. Can you talk about this article for us? Yes, he, he was pointing out that um, really the effect size is quite small, even for cognitive behavioural therapy and, and drugs. Uh, there's a big placebo response. There's about a 40% placebo response. There's about a 10 to 20% um, uh, effect size in terms of uh, medication. Uh, and it tends to be down at the severe end of, of the spectrum. So when you get down to the severe persisting depression, the sort of stuff people see in psychiatry outpatient clinics. So of course the psychiatrists are seeing people who will do better on, on antidepressant GPs will. So we have to be a little bit careful um, with their view that, of, of how effective they are. Because the numbers needed to treat at that level are about four, which is pretty good. But when you get up into the primary care range, there are about 11 for moderate depression and about 16 for mild depression. So they're getting pretty feeble up there, like about a 6% absolute effect size. Um, and the problem I think I see with medication is people make behavioral changes in their life. And if you give them a pill too early on, they'll give the credit to the pill not to themselves, and I think that that um, takes away people's agency, which I don't think is ever a good thing. And then secondly, some people have enormous problems stopping them, uh, and we don't have a good science of stopping antidepressant medication. It's go, go slow if you've been on it a long time, but we really don't know quite what we're doing to stop these things, and we all sort of do our own thing a little bit. But um, so they're not with, they're not without harm basically, and they're they're not my first port of call for distress basically. Uh, they don't um, they they're not particularly good for distress. And that paper also mentioned that every time you try a new drug, it's less effective. That's right. It drops by about fifty percent each time you try a new drug. So if you're chasing the neurotransmitter, as some people do, and that whole theory is not proven by any means. The, um, you're just going to get a, a reduction in benefits. So, um, you know, if the first drug isn't working, maybe try one or two, but after that, you're probably not dealing with a drug-sensitive condition and they need other things. And I think the issue of uh, self-compassion is probably quite important. What is the um, emotional tone of the way 
people speak to themselves. Very good question to say, what is the emotional tone of the conversation in your head? And that can be very revealing. Um, somebody who's full of shame or self-criticism will sort of explode at that. And if you try that with distressed teenagers, you will connect with them. They'll start talking. You know, they're normally sitting there saying, Mum brought me along and I don't want to talk to you. And the next minute, you know, you've got them blurping out. And it's not nice stuff, I have to say. But at least you get them talking and then you can start to work with that a little bit. So um, so I think there's a whole area. There's about 30% of people who have so-called treatment-resistant depression, and, and Pim Cowper suggests drugs and psychotherapy for them. But I'd say with my own patients, some of them have had plenty of drugs and tons of psychotherapy. They have self-compassion issues, and I think that's where the, they're, they're fairly deep self-compassion issues, and they're going to require a lot of work. Bruce, tell us about, I always inquire about early childhood trauma, mm-hmm. uh, abuse issues, um, dysfunctional families. Is this something that you inquire about? And if so, how do you do it? Okay, so I, um, I always ask about, is violence an issue for you and your family? I've learned to soften that one a little bit by saying, do you feel safe at home? Particularly for some women in domestically violent situations. And I also ask uh, about trauma. So have you had any trauma in your life that you feel is unresolved at the moment? And of course that can change the whole course of the consultation. Um, uh, People have often come to grips with those sort of traumas. You'll you'll hear about a trauma and they'll say, no, no, and I've come to grips with that. But if they haven't, then of course uh, you've got the problem as the clinician, you have to find some, like if it's a sexual assault, well then we've got the advantage of ACC in New Zealand. But it might be, I had a woman whose father died when she was 12 and her mother became an alcoholic and beat her up. Um, So there's situations like that, which if you don't ask those questions, they don't come up. And that can be, and that will really be bothering people. We, we know these adverse childhood experiences. There's that book called The Body Keeps the Score. And people physically, because they live shorter lives, but I think the body keeps the score emotionally as well. So I think they're quite, and I think you've got to be courageous to do that mm-hmm. as a clinician. You know, you may be opening up a can of worms, but. Um, you know, an unopened can of worms is not a good thing either. And I think um, if you want to heal people's souls and psyches, then you've got to be willing to, to leap into that situation. And it takes a bit of courage, you know, particularly if it comes up at minute 14 of a consultation. But then you've got to learn to get people back, settle them down, get them back, uh, show them a bit of love and care, and um, get them to come back as soon as possible. Brilliant points. Thank you, Bruce. Inequity is a common theme amongst certain groups in the mental health arena. Um, Prokia recently commissioned a pilot study, Te Tumu Waiora, to address this. Can you inform our listeners about this pilot, uh, what its aims were and what the outcomes were? Okay, so this was putting uh, health improvement practitioners into primary care. And these are psychologists, counsellors, mental health nurses. Uh, In Auckland there's one GP doing it. And they essentially take a thing called a warm handover or warm handoff. So if you as a GP have a difficult situation, you can text the hip and they will come and be introduced. And that act of the warm connection, uh, it's an American football term, a warm handoff, um, 
means that the patient isn't frightened of seeing the therapist. They have about a 95% conversion rate in the pro-care pro thing. So they can't always see them at the time. They may see them later that day or the next day. Um, but that's been remarkably successful and it reversed the equity gap. So more Maori got consultations than, um, than the numbers and practices. We have a similar model in our practice where we have the GPs and nurses doing it and we have the same. We, we, we have more Maori patients getting, getting um, mental health care than the proportion would suggest. So, which, is, which is amazing really because you know, we don't often close equity gaps. So this is all part of the, of the government model. Um, they're, they're starting to look at putting uh, mental health resources into primary care. So I think we just have to watch this space and it's going to be pretty exciting. So the plan is for the pilots to continue and roll out throughout New Zealand? They're rolling out throughout New Zealand. So I heard of a practice in Taupo which has just got a hip and there are some hips, uh, health improvement practitioners in Christchurch. So they're starting to roll them out and I've now got three people in Auckland who are trained in how to train the trainers. So the training, we had Patty Robinson from North America come down and do two tours here training people. She'd trained the US Air Force um, and so we've now got three people in New Zealand who can do the hip training and I do the fact training which is sort of a variation of that basically um, the, the courses I run so so there's lots of opportunities for GPs and nurses with an interest in mental health. All right and to conclude our podcast today Bruce what would your top take-home tips be for our listeners? Well they'd be avoid making mental health diagnoses certainly at the first visit and I, w I would say ever, I virtually never never make mental health diagnoses. Um, I think we need to look at people's uh, social networks and the behavioural restriction that they will have uh, started doing while they're distressed and get behavioural activation going. Um, medications, uh, even the SSRIs are not without their issues, they're not hugely effective and there's risks of withdrawal so um, make sure patients have have a persisting level of low mood before you start giving them and then they're more likely to work that's the thing of course you never know if they work or not that's the problem and neither does the patient it's always hard to say that to patients you're not going to know if these work or not and we don't know if they work or not um, and I think um, we're starting to deal with the inequalities in mental health now so that's that's really exciting it's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please go to our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.